Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is Episode 9 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And of course, we are continuing uh, in Episode 9, our material deep dive. This is actually going to be our last material deep dive for this particular quizzing season. First uh, and Second Corinthians, we will be talking about... 2 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13, and all of the incredible, uh, unique words that happen across these uh, two particular chapters. And then uh, kind of part two of uh, what was uh, covered in episode eight, where we were answering listener questions. We are going to be continuing with our uh, backlog of some uh, listener questions, and we'll see how far we can get through here. Uh, some very interesting and thought-provoking questions that uh, some of them have, I think, some clear answers, and others are more difficult to answer, uh, that, that are definitely are thought-provoking and kind of get us into some quandaries a bit. So that'll be very interesting to get through. If you have any sort of questions, uh, about quizzing or even just about Christianity or theolo uh, theology in general, uh, please send your questions to the show at iq at cbqz.org. So iq for inside uh, quizzing at cbz.org. And of course, you can check out the cbqz.org website for links to the CBQZ application, web-based application for quizzing, and um, some material that you can download for Corinthians and for John next year. And uh, I don't know, there's probably a few other resources that are on the website, so you can check that out. And of course, uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us uh, at InsideQuizzing on Twitter. So with that said, let's uh, jump into 2 Corinthians, and we'll start with chapter 12. We're going to be covering 12 and 13. And then, Scott, what are kind of your thoughts about uh, those two chapters? Well, Griffin, one of my first observations was there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of key verses in these chapters. I'm seeing, is it three verses in chapter 12? And I guess, a ha I guess quite a few at the beginning of 13. So there's a lot more in 13 than in 12. But these being short chapters, it means that if you hear, quote, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 or chapter 13, you can probably jump right on that next half syllable and you'll know what verse number the the question is being asked from. Yeah, and 13, of course, only 14 verses in 13, so a very short chapter. And I'm sure you've probably already looked up the stats of where that uh, exists in the in the hierarchy of the other chapters, right? I haven't, actually. Ah, I'm going to guess it's the second shortest chapter, but I have no idea because I'm just totally guessing. I have no idea either, but yeah, who knows? Who knows? I also see at the beginning of chapter 12, much like the beginnings of a lot of chapters, there is um, some ability for reference questions to be asked. I think a lot of those introductions to chapters have a same type of language introducing the chapter, and it means that there can be... Good reference phrases. For example, I know what or I know whom in 12.3 or I do not what also in verse 3 or I will what in verse 5. Um, also, I will what in verse 9. Yeah, or even being more uh, general, I what, right? Um, you could even do something like off of uh, 11, 12, uh, 15, 17, 18, lots of I's in here. 21, I am afraid, I am what? 
Uh, although I am probably up here somewhere else. That's my, maybe a little bit too key. The other thing that I notice is there's lots and lots of multiple answer opportunities uh, that come out of 12. In particular, uh, if you are focusing on multiple answers, you're going to want to pay special attention, I think, to verse 20. Uh, because there's a whole long list of things that Paul fears, uh, and that list has an awfully ridiculously large number of unique words in it. Um, I fear that there may be discord, uh, unique word, jealousy, uh, fits, uh, unique, of rage, uh, unique, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, all of those unique, and disorder, which is at least uh, unique to chapter 12 makes for a really fun multiple answer to ask. And I did look up the, the chapter lengths, and 14 verses is the second shortest chapter, but there are three chapters that have 13 verses in them. Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, be careful of that. Uh, let's see. 21, I think, has some good multiple answer options as well. Uh, let's see. 7 jumps to mind out of 12. And then, of course, you know, 13 being the end of chapter 2, you've got this beautiful final sort of uh, half paragraph uh, starting in verse 11, which is uh, key, and then running through 14, uh, 14, 11 and 14 both being key. And those are some beautiful verses right there, very poetic, a nice end to the material for the year. Kind of makes you want to ask a quote these three or quote these four, huh, Griffin? It really does. Um, it really, really does. Well, especially since, I mean, 11 and 14 are key and then 12 and 13 are very, very short. Uh, and so, you know, throwing those all together would be kind of a, a nifty thing. You almost want to, you know, do a quote this in the next three verses and give somebody like 40 points for answering it correctly. Yeah, I've actually heard one idea for Meet Lake Internationals that will um, put more emphasis on testing knowledge and material is having something like quote these three and quote these four verses. Um, since currently today, the competition is largely jump very fast. And if you're lucky, it'll be something unique and you can get it right. Um, but having quote these three and quote these four would kind of flip that on its head. And quizzers will have to put in a lot of thought about whether they even want to jump on a specific question type based on how well they do know the material. Very interesting. That I, I, I would be very much in favor of that. The other thing... I don't know if this is something that's that you guys are thinking of, but something that's been long kind of noodling in the back of my mind, um, and I kind of joke about it, but it would be kind of cool if it, it became a, an actual thing, is the idea of different values for the complexity or the difficulty of a particular question. So if a question is particularly easy to answer, uh, maybe you don't get 20 points, you only get, uh, you know, 10 but a particularly difficult question, maybe you get 30 points or something like that. Some some sort of mild variance in in the difficulty of of a uh, of a question ends up being a difficulty and or, or the the value of points that you get out of it. And of course, the the struggle with that is that we you would have to structure rules around that so every quiz had an equivalent value of of points that could be derived from the questions that are that are generated for that quiz. You would. I think today, there, um, you know, based on the material and the question type, there is a difference in difficulty, and that drives many different things. It drives how fast quizzers jump on that question type, and it also drives uh, how much quizzers specialize on that question type. And, a, and in a sense, that kind of creates the point differentials um, for free, even if at the end of the day, each correct question is worth 20 points. Right, right. It would be kind of interesting. It's almost like a 
a way to sort of motivate additional jumping on certain things. So like we have, we noticed um, this year, it, at least in our district, that reference questions were generally a little bit lighter uh, jumped on, that there was a great opportunity, although it's starting to even itself out a little bit now, but there was, there was early on in the year a, a greater opportunity of question getting uh, in references than say, you know, as relative to say quotes or finish the verses or standard questions or that sort of thing, or multiple answers, uh, there were more no jumps on reference questions. And so it might be kind of interesting to play around with the idea, at least intellectually around the idea of saying, well, what if a reference question is worth 25 points instead of 20? And it, I mean, not a, not a ton difference, but just enough to kind of up the the pressure up the sort of expectation of like well this is this is an especially valuable question and an especially valuable question type and maybe we get more uh, more more memorization with references which of course is something we would be very interested in yeah i think it actually would be something pretty simple for a single district to implement um you could take reference questions where there has to be at least 3 and say for the first two reference questions in a quiz they are worth 30 or 25, and the extra above 20 goes to the team, not to the individual. And then you minimize a lot of the unintended consequences I think you could have from changing the point value of a correct question. Ooh, yeah. See, I I hadn't even thought of that. That's even better. Yeah, because, I mean, then then there's a value to the team. It's almost like a third quizzer bonus or a fourth quizzer bonus. I've also thought that, uh, uh, you know, we implementing a fourth quizzer bonus should be more than just 10, because uh, it's just a little bit more... Uh, difficult, or actually not just a little bit, it's quite a bit more difficult to get a fourth quizzer uh, bonus than a third quizzer bonus. And so, you know, certainly from a team that has, say, some strong uh, first and second chair talent uh, and maybe some younger talent uh, in the third and fourth chair, it's going to encourage a lot of team cohesion and strategy to ensure that everybody gets at least one question in a quiz because the values of those those uh, the fourth quizzer is so much is 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 higher than say third which is higher than second and so on. I think it's a great idea and I think it's best implemented in those kind of all-star type events like Great West or Winter Nationals or Internationals um where you are going to have teams composed of five you know qualified and strong members whereas in the district coaches and program leaders are having to deal with individual versus team goals when they construct their teams because right, the yeah. stronger a team is, the more it's going to depress individual averages of the people on that team. Yeah, that's true. And so if you've got somebody who is potentially within the top five and can qualify potentially for internationals, do you place them on a stronger team where they have to in a sense, compete with people on their team to be able to get their four for a given quiz. Uh, that can be that can be a tough choice. Yeah, for example, one of the strongest teams in our district this year has two really, really good quizzers on their team. Um, and quizzers three and four know a lot of material themselves. But in essence, they're competing um, not in a 20-question quiz, but in an 11 or 12-question quiz, which is much, much different and much more difficult than a lot of their peers. Yeah, absolutely. And especially with question types. I mean, in a 12-question quiz, depending on how the question types roll out and how the you know first and second chair are jumping, uh, you can be deprived of certain question types that you may have been focusing on. Mm -hmm. And this is why I'd love to set up a format where team goals or um, team competition and individual competition are completely separated. I don't know how feasible that is, but I think that would simplify things a lot for um, program leaders, coaches, and quizzers, and it would also allow um, 
officials and people who run the program to set up some pretty interesting competitive structures. Yeah. I almost wonder if there's something along the lines that we could set up like World, where you know, world was always intended to be inclusive of multiple different denominations, multiple different types of programs. And the idea was, uh, I mean, some programs took it very seriously and I mean, everybody took it to some degree seriously and, and, and tried their best at, at world. But I mean, some, some, uh, districts would include the world meet as part of their individual averages to qualify for different things. Uh, I don't think we ever did in CMA PNW. I think it was always just a, a purely a fun meet, but it might be interesting to have something, uh, some sort of program kind of like world where you're only doing like maybe one or two meets a year or something like that. And it's, it's sort of cross, uh, cross discipline, cross, uh, denomination, cross program. And it'd be a great way to sort of experiment with some of these ideas and then, you know, take what works back to the district level and drop what doesn't work and, you know, enjoy the process. Yeah. I mean, you hear of companies these days having one or two day hackathons where they try to brainstorm and, um, engineer a specific, um, technical solution where you hear of like Gmail, Google Gmail has its labs area. So it's kind of features under development that aren't, um, ready for prime time yet. Kind of, um, a, a low pressure fun day where we would get to try out ideas. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it would be. It would be. And I mean, I wouldn't want to combine it with uh, something like Scramble, where I I think it's sort of at cross purposes, where Scramble, we sort of want to keep things consistent with what's going to happen at the rest of the district level so that, uh, you know, younger quizzers, rookies and and second years can have an opportunity to experience uh, a very low pressure in a simulated environment of what a what a quiz meet during the rest of the year is going to look like. Definitely. All right, cool. Well, any other thoughts or ideas out of 12 or 13? Just a reminder that the new material is weighted at 50%, so roughly half the questions will come from the new material. And if quizzers are working methodically through the material but maybe not quickly enough, the chapters that they don't get to are likely going to be 12 or 13. So there's a lot of points to be had if you know 12 and especially chapter 13 very well. Yeah, and in fact... Even if you haven't quite done a lot of memorization for the upcoming meet in Madras coming up here in just a little bit less than two weeks, uh, you may want to focus on 12 and 13 and kind of work backwards. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity that, that can come out of those last couple of chapters, last, you know, three or four uh, chapters even. And uh, like Scott was saying, as, as Scott was saying, it's, it's worth a lot. And if you can squeeze out even just a couple of extra jumps, a couple of extra questions, it has a very strong impact to your team's overall uh, placement and your personal uh, overall average as well. It's totally true, and I would even just start with chapter 13 and tell yourself I'm just going to memorize these 14 verses over a week and then see where you end up because that chapter is the last chapter, will probably be the least well-studied and known chapter, and it has a lot of key verses. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And some very beautiful verses too. So, I mean, there's, you know, certainly very spiritually edifying uh, as well. Well, with that, let's, uh, let's move on to some of the, uh, remaining questions, uh, from our, uh, listeners. And of course, these are coming in from Andrew from the Northeastern District. And it's awesome that we're getting questions in and, and communications from outside the Pacific Northwest. It's very exciting to, uh, talk to folks and make connections out there in the greater world of quizzing. So uh, a lot of these are sort of rule-based things and rule-based philosophy sort of things and program sort of leadership sort of stuff. And so 
I'm going to, I have some opinions, but I think Scott's opinions are probably going to be, actually not probably, I am fairly confident Scott's opinions are going to be a lot more informed than, than mine are. So I'm going to kind of, uh, in a sense, start off reading some of these almost like an interviewer and I'm going to kind of poke Scott for some additional information based on his answers and we'll just kind of go from there and we'll see how things go. So the first one. Uh, the first question uh, is talking about uh, something that we've actually talked about a, a few episodes back about the multiple the sort of the new multiple answer rules uh, that have come into play. And uh, Andrew's question is as follows. And it's actually a series of questions, sort of a paragraph of questions. So this is what Andrew writes. So this is more a hypothetical question I was thinking about while listening to one of your uh, episodes. You were talking about the new rule with multiple answers and negative and positive answers. And somewhere in there, you said something to the extent, uh, extent of a negative answer, i.e. God is joyful and not sinful, doesn't show what the question is, but shows what the question is not. But doesn't a negative answer actually show what the question is? God is, quote, not sinful. It shows us uh, what God uh, or it shows us that God is sinless. If I were to say that I am not female, that shows that I am male. If I were to say that I am not married, uh, don't I know that or don't am, am I not showing that I am single? I'm probably wrong in my thinking or logic, but it was just something that was mulling around in my head. So there's a lot to talk about here, Griffin. Um, the the existence of these positive and negative multiple answer questions has been, you know, around, I think, since the beginning of multiple answer questions. I have no way of knowing, but I think it is. And these types of multiple answers have come up during the international officials meeting for most of the years that I was involved as um, an adult. So kind of 2012, 2013, 2014. And it was kind of a surprise to me because I had never thought of them as not valid or problematic or confusing or anything of that nature. Um, but there were some districts that did not consider them to be multiple answers, and so there was often a discussion at internationals. Well, in the off season, when we were um, when I was on the rulebook committee, we were discussing them. There were a lot of viewpoints talked about, uh, and one of the viewpoints is quizzing is open to sixth to twelfth graders. And beyond that, some districts have junior Bible quizzing for fourth and fifth graders. And so there is a desire to, to ensure that the types of questions that we're asking are understandable and not confusing for a wide range of ages. I think that's a great, that's a great thing to think about. Um, I think that was, that was a component in why the NIV 2011 was selected as our material version, because it is, it is more understandable and easily readable than some of the other versions. And that was just one of the criteria that was considered by the CQLT when they made that decision. So on one hand, we have understandability for quizzers. Um, on the other hand, it's, you know, we can't assume or we can't make it so that everything about quizzing is fully understandable to a sixth grader just as it is to a 12th grader. There are concepts about Bible quizzing or strategies that are just easier to understand the older that you get. For example, quoting backwards on a reference question or um, why a verse might be a quote these two verses, or how, based on the mix of situation questions that are being asked, it can narrow down which quotations it could be. Um, those, those sorts of things are going to be more difficult for a younger quizzer to understand, but we still want them in Bible quizzing. Um, and so there's a balance to be had there. And I think in this case, there was a desire um, to not have these be considered valid because they were difficult to teach to younger quizzers. And I think what you're saying, Andrew, makes a lot of sense. 
I think that if God is joyful and not sinful, I think God is what not sinful. To me, that's very, very clear. I don't think that because the question is phrased, God is what, then we're surprised or somehow misled when the, the answer is not something. Um, and kind of going further on this idea, there are many questions that a question writer could write that are not of this nature, but that um, kind of put forth an incorrect meaning. Um, I think of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 13 or Hebrews 16, there's the phrase, no one is sexually immoral, but then it goes on to clarify what it means by that in context. So I could write the interrogative, who is sexually immoral, and the answer is no one. Well, if that's all that I wrote, that's not the meaning that is supposed to be conveyed by the text. And so you could want to write into the rule book, you know, any question that conveys an incorrect or potentially heretical meaning is invalid. And I think that would have some merit, but I think it also adds a lot of complexity in deciding what that is. And I think in this case, for most of the questions that are multiple answers, just plain multiple answers that have a positive and a negative portion, it's pretty simple um, to see how these, um, under the new rule, are invalid. And it's very easy to test that material with an interrogative question that is just structured a little bit differently. There's no problem there in my mind. And so I think... While, as question writers, we lose the ability to write a handful of multiple answers, it's not a big deal. But I do see a a pretty big issue on reference questions, where there's a not somewhere in the material, and a quizzer has to know to include that not as part of their reference question. Otherwise, it would be deemed invalid, and they would be considered incorrect. They wouldn't be incorrect for going out of context. They wouldn't be incorrect for providing a question of a different type um, or anything else. It would just be this specific Um, rule meant really to eliminate these positive and negative multiple answers would then have to be applied to single answer reference questions like, I am not the one. Well, if the quizzer gives the question, I am what, that might be a valid single answer chapter verse reference, it would be considered invalid based on this new rule, which to me is unfortunate because I think we want to be encouraging quizzers to memorize the material and work hard at it. And if On a reference question, they're going to jump on the reference, quote the verse, isolate the exact part of the verse they need to get from, and and provide a mostly valid reference question that we're going to call them right because of this rule that was written for a totally separate case. To me, that's not um, the way that I would want want it to be. But for you, Andrew, I would say if you think that these sorts of positive, negative, multiple answer questions are very clear and are not confusing, I would make that case to those within your district. Um, Provide examples. Um, and show how you think the meaning has not changed and how it's clear. And that would be a helpful way for leadership within your district to um, gather your thoughts and then potentially make their thoughts known in a wider audience. And if there are others that feel this way, um, there's always a chance for any rule to be changed. And I think um, the Rules Committee talked extensively about this one, and it was ultimately written into the rule book. And now we have almost a year under our belt of it in practice. And I haven't had a lot of conversations with other districts about how it's going, but I'd be very interested if people appreciate the rules it's written or wish uh, things would go back to the, the way they were before the rule was written. And I really don't know what the sentiment is. Yeah. And I, I tend to agree pretty much with everything Scott said. Um, I sort of look at this from a, you know, simplicity versus complication perspective. And, and I understand I understand that the rule was put in place to try to reduce complication uh, for younger quizzers. But in my mind, 
uh, at least for me, it seems like it adds com- uh, complexity because uh, without this rule, it seems to me like we'd just be answering based on the material's words alone rather than sorting out meaning. Now, granted, it's a fairly obvious meaning, you know, the, the word not uh, versus not not, you know, be there being there uh, is fairly obvious. But it seems to me it still requires a little bit extra uh, thought uh, and and diligence through there, and then of course, like Scott oh, Scott was saying, there's unintended consequences. I don't know that it really actually solves the problem, if it even is a problem. I don't know that it really solves the problem that it's directed to solve, and I think it actually adds some complication and uh, potentially adds some complexity and confusion. Uh, but that being said, I mean it's a fairly it's a fairly innocuous uh, sort of rule in the greater uh, the greater scheme of things. That being said, though, um, Scott was answering almost the second question set that that uh, came in also from Andrew, and this is a little bit more of a philosophical question around the rule book in general, uh, but something that. I can personally get uh, very passionate about uh, in terms of, you know, sort of my perspective on, on one answer. But the, the, uh, the question from Andrew here reads as follows. The updated rulebook has quite a few changes to it that I don't overly think are beneficial to quizzing as a whole. Uh, without going into details, what would you recommend uh, that I do to voice my opinions in this matter? Uh, should I contact my district coordinator or send my thoughts through uh, the church or a team? Or should I talk to the rules committee or the leadership committee? And he goes on with uh, several other questions. And uh, he even says, you know, should I try to work my way up the ranks, uh, become an official internationals or help coach a team at internationals uh, so that my voice has more weight in what I say? And what would you advise? So I will echo what Scott said. I think you should voice your opinion regardless of where you might perceive yourself in sort of a ranking of voices within the program. And I would I would encourage you to try to do your best to ignore any sort of perceived ranking of voices within a program uh, because wisdom doesn't come from the amount of years necessarily that somebody is in a program. I think there, there can be a correlation there, but there is definitely not a hard and fast correlation. And of course, I'm remember, I, I'm reminded of two of my favorite verses when I was a youngster. Uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, 4.13, uh, better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. And then of course, even more famous, uh, Job, uh, 32, I think starting in, uh, like verse seven or something like that, uh, I thought, uh, age should speak, uh, advanced years should teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the almighty that gives them understanding. So, you know, if you've got, you know, a kind of a tugging on your heart, uh, that might be from the Holy spirit about some of these rules or some of anything related related to how the program is running or the effectiveness of the program, I think you should definitely voice that voice that in obviously with gentleness and respect and all the other sort of usual things that you want to uh, you know, call into play as somebody who's raising something that others could be uh, upset about or maybe disagree with you about that sort of thing. But I think your your opinion is is very important and should definitely be shared. So I don't know, Scott, I've sort of thrown in my answer there. But what's your answer to that one? I agree with your thoughts, Griffin. And I think um, the CQLT, which is the CMA quizzing leadership team, is working very hard to ensure really good communication with all of the Constituents is too formal a word, but all the districts of quizzing within Canada and the United States. And I think they're doing a great job of it. 
and they have made themselves open to feedback. And so I would feel welcome to do that. I know you definitely can through your leadership within your district. Um, you guys have someone on the CQLT, but there are a few CQLT members from Canada and a few from the United States, and they are there uh, to gather feedback because they want the best fruit Bible quizzing. And I think while there are others that are older than you and have more years of experience within CMA Bible quizzing, there's a lot of value to being younger and having a different look at things. Um, one of, to me, one of the most impressive quiz mastering jobs was done by a first-time quiz master who's uh, even younger than me, and I'm not very old, um, not too long ago. And I was just floored by the job that this quiz master did with no international quiz mastering experience, but extensive quiz mastering and quizzing experience. Um, but they did an amazing, amazing job. And it was just, it showed the effort and the care and the dedication and showed that it was important for them to really contribute to Bible quizzing in a strong way. And things are always changing in the world and in Bible quizzing. There's changes in technology. There's changes in um, evangelical church membership. We had a change in material version. And with these changes, it's always going to be beneficial to have um, new thoughts and fresh thoughts about um, the way that we structure Bible quizzing and the way that we write our rule book and the way that we recruit and the way that we communicate. And so I think it's very valuable to not consider yourself to be an outsider. Um, and I had a few other thoughts, but I can't remember what they are. Oh, yeah. I would say when that, like, people have very, very strong thoughts about the rules. And you will find very strong competing thoughts on pretty much every part of the rule book. Um, those thoughts will be well thought out. And so when you have thoughts about, as you said, um, a few changes that you don't think are beneficial to quizzing as a whole, I would be um, really not careful is the wrong tone that I want to convey, but I would think a lot about what goals are you seeking to achieve and by what criteria are you judging beneficial? Because I think the rulebook can be a pretty emotional area and you can say like, I don't like this rule or something of that um, kind of language which really isn't helpful, and it just causes people to become more entrenched in the position that they have. But if you say, um, the thing that I'm seeking to maximize is overall memorization volume by quizzers um, in my district, and I think that this rule has actually lessened that. Well, now you've set forth a criteria that you're using to judge a rule, and you're, you're saying that you think it has not, the new rule has not helped that. And that gives people the ability to have a much more constructive uh, discussion because then the discussion can be, oh, I actually think this new rule has increased that or I don't think that criteria is important or, you know what, I think that criteria is super important and I hadn't thought of it that way and maybe we should think about this rule more. And so if you're clear about the criteria that you're using to judge things in the rule book, I think it would be really um, a helpful way to go about things. So, yeah, I completely agree. And moreover, I think what Scott just said is really, really great advice in the world at large beyond quizzing as well. Uh, when you find yourself in disagreements uh, with anybody, uh, it's, oftentimes it's, uh, it's based on different sets of criteria uh, and maybe a, a miscommunication in some of those criteria rather than, uh, you know, uh, just personal preferences or anything like that. So I think sometimes being able, actually not just sometimes, I think 
oftentimes being able to take it a step beyond a personal opinion into how you came to that personal opinion can be an extremely effective tactic in at least getting your position to be considered. Maybe you don't get people, uh, uh, you know, you, maybe you don't convince them to change their mind, but at least they can appreciate your point of view and maybe come to understand what you're, what you're saying. I think that's incredibly helpful advice uh, beyond quizzing itself. So then um, <clears throat> going on a little bit here, talking about the jumping pace of quizzing, and we've talked a little bit about this in the past, uh, specifically around engineering uh, fast questions versus having a variety of questions. Uh, Andrew writes as follows. I guess I would say I'm on the opposite philosoph uh, philosophy side of you guys. Uh, here in our zone, we try to write questions as key as possible because we think that quizzers are going to jump relatively fast. They jump, in my opinion, fast mainly because they know that there will be more key questions than non uh, key. Uh, by key, I mean questions that are unique within the first uh, one to three words of the question. So quizzers are willing to take the risk to get the points. And because of this, we write key questions and don't write non-key questions. Why would you disagree with the view ideas that we take? Uh, note, I'm asking out of curiosity more uh, as a question on why you take the stance that you do. The question may sound like a challenging type question, but I'm uh, not here to uh, debate our views. So uh, my couple of two cents here is that I think the order of cause and effect m uh, may be reversed in maybe how you're approaching the question and how we're approaching it. Um, or at least that's sort of the first thing that comes to my mind. I have a belief that quizzers will alter their jumping speed based on a pattern that they perceive in uh, both the cadence of the quiz master and also in the material, the type of questions being asked and the keyness of those questions. So I think if there's a, a strongly key questions being asked, and, and I'm using your definition here, Andrew, where you know the idea of saying a question becomes unique within the first few syllables versus maybe around the fourth word or something like that, or several syllables uh, in, I think doing that on a uh, increasingly consistent basis, having questions that are uh, more and more leaning in that direction will end up causing quizzers to jump faster rather than maybe necessarily the other way around. I think by having a variety, you're increasing the likelihood that quizzers will be more strategic in their jumping. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I think it ultimately provides an opportunity to have uh, scoring and, and, and the sort order of scoring be a little bit more indicative or closerly closerly, more closely indicative of the prep time and the material memorization of the quizzers versus uh, if, if uh, everything is very, very key and therefore the jumping is very, very fast, uh, the sort order is going to be a little bit more random, uh, it, it seems to me, based on who can, who can jump and just get lucky in, in getting those questions. I don't know, Scott, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think your first thought there is really an important one that you think um, how the questions are written and engineered and the, how the question sets are generated will influence how fast the quizzers jump and not the other way around. And I think that's the correct way to, to think of it. Um, to go back to my previous point on the previous question, um, I want to set forth the criteria that I'm kind of using to judge my philosophy. And my criteria is um, starting from the belief that Bible quizzing and the competition aspect um, – incentivize youth to memorize far more of the Bible than they ever would. 
And so I think um, the quiz questions that are written should seek to test the entire material and reward the quizzers who know the material the best. And I'm, I'm being fairly vague on know the material the best because there's obviously quizzers that can quote the material word perfect, quizzers that have studied lists, quizzers that can execute and jump well under pressure. And those are all aspects of scoring well. Um, but in general, I want to write questions that will reward quizzers who know the material better. And because of that, I totally think there should be variety in how um, how quickly questions are unique and also in the difficulty of questions. And when I'm writing questions, I'm not really looking for easy questions or hard questions. I'm thinking of questions that clearly and in a non-confused way fit the criteria laid forth in the rulebook for questions and that flow. Um, because, And I also want them to have as complete of a thought as I can because quizzing is based verbatim on the text um, and I want the questions to be conversational. I want them to be easily read by the quiz master and without like awkward starts or ending in an awkward place or a forced multiple answer or things like that. Um, because I think all of that is to the benefit of the quizzer. And so I write questions that have all kinds of variety. So it's like I'm not trying to write interrogatives to start with W's, and I'm not trying to not write quest interrogative questions to start with W's. Um, and so I'll go through and I'll write all of my quiz questions, and then I will go back later and I apply a difficulty score to all, all the questions in my, in my whole set. And then what I aim to do when I go to generate questions, so there's a lot of different responsibilities here, right? There's writing questions and then there's generating the question sets, is um, when I generate question sets, I try to ensure that the overall difficulty of 20 questions in the quiz are roughly the same to 20 questions in another quiz. So the key thing is I'm not saying I don't want to have um, more than three W interrogatives, um, which I know has been done in the past by specific quizzing software. You know, because to me, a W interrogative might not be super difficult if it's a, if there's a unique word on the second uh, syllable, whereas a different interrogative that doesn't start with a W but starts with therefore he is uh, is going to be way more difficult. And so I judge difficulty mainly based on how many syllables it takes the question to become unique. Um, and so in a quiz, there's kind of a mix, right? The interrogatives might overall be easy relative to other questions, but then that means maybe the reference question is going to be more difficult or the quote questions are going to be more difficult. And so that's kind of my loose check to ensure or loose constraint to ensure that each quiz of 20 questions that pre that's presented to quizzers has roughly a similar difficulty to every other question set of 20 questions presented to quizzers so that everyone is on a relatively equal footing competitively. But there's still an enormous amount of variety because I think the quizzers that have an understanding of how quickly um, a variety of questions um, will become key um, will really, really um, should be rewarded. So, for example, when I quizzed, I would write a huge long list of interrogative questions, and then I would go through and find the number of common syllables, and then I would see if I was a robot and I jumped on three syllables, I knew I could get 92% um, of them correct. And so... In my head now, when I'm on the other side and I'm a quiz master and I'm generating question sets, I kind of want the same thing to be in play. Like, I want quizzers who understand the difference between if I jump at four syllables, I might get a ton of questions correct, but I'll win a few jumps. And if I jump at three, 
I'll get a lower accuracy, but I'll win more jumps. And if I jump at one, I'll get very low accuracy correct, but I might win all the jumps. Like to understand all of those kind of shades of gray based on jumping speed and how it affects their own accuracy, which is driven by how well they know the material and how well they study the list. Um, but then also knowing your competition and knowing how fast you jump and uh, how many questions you, how many jumps you will win. And I think all of the, the quizzers who do that kind of work, I want to reward them. Because to me, that's a lot of work. And if you're putting in that work, you deserve to be rewarded. I love to see a quizzer that knows I need two and a half syllables audibly in a mouth shape. And if I stick to that speed, I know that if people beat me, they're going to get more than 50% wrong. Um, but if they jump slower than me, then they're not going to win the jump. Like to, to um, do that kind of study and preparation um, in advance and then execute consistently at that speed to me should be rewarded. Um, and then that's also why as a quiz master, I want to read at a deliberate enough pace that allows quizzers the opportunity to jump at all those l- tiny discrete syllable jumps. Um, I know that there is a desire among quiz masters when they know there's going to be a super fast jump to read faster to get out more material. But really what you're doing is you're just um, – you're almost ch- deliberately choosing to take away points from the quizzers that have prepared the most. Because you're saying, you know, I know there's a range of preparation, but I want to make this able to be gotten correct by a wider range of quizzers than would be able to get it correct if I read as I normally do. And to me, that's crazy. Like, I don't know why you would make the decision to reward quizzers who are less prepared. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, to follow up, on what you were saying, it, it, it seems counter to the point of quizzing. The goal of quizzing is, I mean, at least from my perspective, and I, I think Scott agrees, the goal is to try to get as many verses memorized by the most number of people all up and down the spectrum of uh, experience and number of years in and amount of time uh, each individual quizzer is willing to expend. So if, if a quizzer is willing to expend, you know, half an hour maximum prep time per week and another quizzer is, uh, willing to spend a lot more time than that, uh, per week, I want each of them are going to be at a different sort of spot within this sort of spectrum of preparedness. I want to reward as many of them as possible relative to the amount of preparedness so that each of them is encouraged to memorize just one more verse, you know, that, that sort of thing. If you, if you only memorize, you know, say 10 verses, uh, for an upcoming meet, what can I do as a quiz master, as an official, as a coach to take that and take it to 11, right? If somebody's memorizing every word in a chapter uh, and and going through all of the chapters of the material coming up to the meet, how do I get them to kind of kick that up just one little extra notch and, and maybe memorize a little bit more effectively the references? Or uh, are they able to quote I don't know, backwards or, or in, in, you know, crazy things like that. How do I get the, even at the upper levels, how do I kind of kick it up a notch just a little bit more in terms of everything involved in quizzing as far as an official and writing questions and reciting questions and coaching and administration and rule book and everything together? How do we get the most material memorized by the most number of people? And it seems to me that by engineering questions in a more uniform way uh or or and uniform isn't the right way to 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 say it but engineering fast paced questions ends up i think detrimental it can i i i fear 
uh, I, I have no scientific data for this, but I fear that it would be uh, discouraging for people at all levels, both the, the people who prepared uh, and the people who are even less prepared or even, uh, you know, rookies and, and second years who have tried their best to prepare, but just because of their, you know, early entrance into the program uh, may not have as much skill in quizzing as some of the more advanced years. I want to, I don't want, I want to remove as much as possible things that would be discouraging for every level of quizzing to just get every level of quizzing to take it just one uh, step beyond where they are right now. Um, so anyway, with that being said, um, I've talked a little bit too much on this one. Sorry, I chewed up a few extra minutes there. But uh, well, actually, Griffin, can yeah. I actually jump in again? Yeah, yeah. I have a few stories um, from internationals a few years back. It was Matthew, and in Matthew, there's a lot of quotations that begin with "teacher," comma, and "sir," comma, which in internationals, um, if it's not key in the first three or or two syllables is quite slow on situation questions. And I didn't hear a single quotation asked starting that way. And so it was clear to me that someone had made the decision that we don't want to ask these because it's almost a guaranteed error for quizzers. And I would take the opposite standpoint and say that I want to reward the quizzers who understand the risk that they take jumping at two syllables, um, knowing that these are out there, or decide to slow down their jump and let others take on that risk. I would love to see that that standpoint taken. I also have a story a few years back at internationals. There was a quizzer from Western Pennsylvania who right from the get-go, you could tell how well-prepared this quizzer was. Just incredibly well-prepared, knew exactly the jump speed that they wanted to jump on specific questions, and they jumped over and over on finish the verses and quotes. And as often happens at internationals, when you're jumping at one and a half syllables or so, you have to pick between verses. And time and time again, I saw this quizzer pick the better choice, like the verse that was more spiritually significant or the verse that worked better as a finish these two. And again and again, it was a different one. And I felt so bad because I could see how much work they had put in and were not being rewarded with the scores. Now, thankfully, they were so incredibly well-prepared that over the course of 12 prelims, they did come out as the top quizzer. But... I can only imagine that their average could have been a full 20 points higher had more thought and care been put into selecting questions for those keepers questions. And then my last story is from Great West quite a, quite a, quite a many years back. But one district had been running Great West for a while and probably um, had been using the same style of questions for all those years. And then um, a different district took over and had their own style of writing questions. And those questions were on average, more difficult than the questions that these quizzers at Great West had been used to. And so for the first few rounds of prelims, you could see quizzers jump very fast and in general get a low accuracy, like maybe one-third of questions they got correct. And then almost like it was very quick. You could see the best prepared and the most experienced quizzers slow down their jumps by a half syllable to a syllable, and slowly but surely they started pulling ahead. And by the end of the meet... The, average, the individual averages were lower than historically at Great West, but boy, those top five quizzers were undisputably the best five prepared, and I think that's what we seek to do. We're not seeking to have everyone quiz out in a quiz. We're not seeking to have no one quiz out in a quiz, but we're seeking to let the quizzers who have worked the hardest identify themselves and score the best. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, let's skip down to our next question here. This one is uh, in the field of challenging. We've got actually a few questions here, both from challenging and protesting. Something uh, protesting is not really something that we see a lot of, uh, but it is an important part of quiz uh, quiz mastery and and quizzing in general. Uh, so anyway, going into challenging, sort of an ethical question about challenging. Uh, Andrew's question is as follows: uh, During a quizzing practice several years ago, my younger brother wanted to challenge the validity of a question that he got right. He had gotten up on a multiple answer that wasn't really a multiple answer, and he had been called correct, but he wanted to challenge and have the question thrown out because, because he thought it was an invalid question. How would you advise a quizzer who wants to challenge against himself, in a sense? Uh, my opinion is that if the quizmaster doesn't catch it, uh, nor other captains challenge against it, then don't say anything and accept the 20 points. But would you agree or disagree? Um, this is an interesting question. I think there's not really a wrong answer here. I think if you have a quizzer who doesn't feel right getting points on a question that they either think or know is invalid, I would never tell that quizzer to not challenge against themselves. It, it might seem weird, but um, if they don't feel right getting the points, then I'm not going to tell them um, to be okay with something that they don't feel right about. On the other hand, I think it is the responsibility of the officials and also the other captains to catch things like that. And I think if they don't catch it, I think you're totally fine not saying anything and taking the 20 points. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think as uh, frustrating as a non-answer answer is, I think the non-answer is the right answer. I mean, I think it's sort of... I, I wouldn't call this even an ethical question. I think there's too many different ways that are viable to and reasonable to uh, answer this from an ethical perspective. I think this is more a sort of a spiritual question. What is the Holy Spirit saying to the quizzer at the time? And I would encourage the, the quizzer the, the, to challenge or not challenge based on uh, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And I can see arguments on both sides of, of the answer here. So i I neither agree nor disagree. Uh, I think it's uh, it's sort of based on a quizzer by quizzer, situation by situation uh, context. I will say that in quizzes where I have seen captains respond to a challenge by agreeing with, say, my captain or by challenging on behalf of a team that is not theirs, um, I've always appreciated those situations. But by no means would I say that that is uh, always desired to be the way things should operate. I, I think part of the appeal of quizzing and the value of quizzing, uh, the encouragement to memorize as much as possible comes from this aspect of competition. And so I think there is definitely something to be said about encouraging this aspect of friendly, encouraging uh, competition. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm kind of on the fence on this one. Uh, but a, a second uh, challenging, or <laughs> I guess a second challenging question about challenging uh, comes from Ando, uh, Andrew, and it is as follows. Uh, challenging against people can be tricky, and sometimes you can make a person look bad. Not always, but sometimes. I have heard that you should direct your challenge against the quizzer uh, who you're challenging against, and I've also heard that you should direct it against the quiz master. In situations like these, who would you rather attack, quote unquote, uh, in your challenge? And then as a quiz master, if a quizzer makes you look bad, how do you stop yourself uh, from seeing them in a negative light? So the first question first, I would encourage 
everyone to consider that challenging is not an attack. Um, I, w- I would consider challenging to be a, um, despite the word uh, uh, challenging, uh, you, I, I think in, in world quizzing, we actually didn't call it challenging. We called it appealing a decision. I think it, it, in a sense, it's really just appealing uh, a decision to say, well, can you reconsider your ruling? And here's why. Uh, I wouldn't direct it as an attack against anyone, a, a quizzer or a quiz master, but rather, uh, you're yearning for more precise, uh, rulings. And, 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 and that's really sort of the goal of, of what challenging needs to be. So, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, who do, who do you speak toward? I mean, certainly you're speaking towards the quiz master. So I would direct your conversation or your, or your challenge to the quiz master. But I definitely don't think you're attacking the quiz master. I don't think you are, uh, trying to make the quiz master look bad or anything like that. You're trying to point out something, uh, even just to get clarity. Or even if you think the quiz master made a mistake, you're saying, I think you made a mistake here. Uh, can you reconsider your ruling in light of what I am, uh, the information that I'm presenting to you? Um, but then as to the second question, uh, you know, as, uh, as a quiz master, if a quizzer makes you look bad, how do you stop yourself, uh, from seeing them in a negative light? This is extremely important because as a quiz master, you have to remain as absolutely neutral as possible uh, amongst uh, the individuals, uh, the individual quizzers that are on the platform between the three teams, and you have to be absolutely as close to neutral as you possibly can between those three teams. So for me, one of the things that I always keep in the back of my mind is a statement. It's, a, it's really about how I react, or but react isn't the right word. It's how I see myself amongst other people. And I think it's a, it's a sort of a good lesson, both for quizzing, but also outside of quizzing. And it is thus be independent as much as you can be independent of the good opinion of others. In other words, be apathetic about how people view you as much as possible. Uh, so instead be concerned only with following God and glorifying God through doing as good of a job as you can do in whatever situation you happen to be in. Uh, try to follow the teachings of Christ as best you can. Uh, always listen to the callings of the Holy Spirit as best you can. Uh, but be as independent as you can be of the good opinion of others. Now, certainly that, that doesn't mean that you're ignoring feedback from other people. If you get feedback from, from, from others, uh, feedback and constructive criticism is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so always be receptive to that. Listen to it, incorporate it, but always, uh, don't yearn after the acceptance of other people, right? So accept the feedback, positive and negative from others, but be independent of their good opinion. So I don't know, Scott, do you have anything you want to add? Those are wonderful thoughts, Griffin. I do have some things I'd like to add. Uh, as a quiz master, when I approach um, quiz mastering a quiz, there are many things that I want to have happen. Um, one is that I want to get every single objective ruling correct. I don't want to ask an invalid question. Um, if a quizzer said nine words from a different verse, I want to call them out of context. Those things are objective, and I want to get them right because I know the rule book. Um, beyond that, there are rulings that are going to be subjective, like if a quizzer, did they say enough to go out of context, or did they say enough to get counted correct on an interrogative question? Um, there's not always an objectively right answer to make, but I want to make sure that my rulings are backed by the rule book because then I have something I can use to be consistent in my rulings. And I also, I also want to make sure 
that everyone understands the basis of my ruling. And then the last thing is I want everyone to ensure or to feel like they have had any of their thoughts or concerns heard. And to me, that's one of the biggest reasons for challenging and for protesting. There are many um, subjective cases. So there can be a time when a quiz master makes a mistake in in an objective ruling and you're challenging for that case. Um, But there's also those subjective cases. And quizzers should feel empowered to take that opportunity to argue their interpretation of the rulebook as it applies to this subjective situation. Nothing about this is an attack, right? You're not trying to get another quizzer counted incorrect because you don't like them and you're inventing something that doesn't exist in the rulebook. You're not trying to show up to Quizmaster and say, like, how did you not know that this was the correct ruling? Um, you're just helping the Quizmaster meet their goals of the quiz, which are in the best interests of all the participants. You're helping the Quizmaster correct, correctly make objective rulings. You're ensuring that the Quizmaster has made subjective rulings based on content from the rulebook that ensures them to make such subjective rulings consistently in the future, and you are ensuring that all the participants in the quiz feel like they have had their thoughts heard on a subjective ruling. And so you are helping. Um, you are helping everyone to have a wonderful quiz. I think that's important to think about. Um, I think um, one aspect that some people struggle with is this is a competition, but we're also Christians. And so what's the Christian way to approach something? Is it Christian to challenge to have someone else counted incorrect. And I think um, I think it's largely incorrect to use general principles of your religion to decide how you're going to, like whether or not you're going to voice your opinion on a subjective CMA Bible quizzing ruling. Uh, you know, as long as you're being respectful of the people involved, you're just working within the structure of a competition presented to you to ensure that the rules as they're presented are carried out consistently. There's nothing unchristian about voicing your opinion about how you think a ruling should be. Moreover, I would say voicing your opinion about a ruling, especially a subjective ruling, helps to keep the program consistent, which is incredibly important for all the reasons Scott said. Uh, And the consistency of the program, the consistency in every aspect of the program, is encouraging for memorization and not discouraging for memorization. And so... I think of challenging as a as a one of the tools that we can use in Bible quizzing to further the goals of quizzing, uh, which from my perspective, and I know I know Scott's as well, is to get the most amount of material uh, memorized. And so it all kind of flows back to that sort of central core of why we do quizzing at all. Exactly. Like as a quiz master, if there might be a case where I rule incorrectly and don't award points to a quizzer who has studied the material and got a question right um, within the rules of what's in the rule book, that's going to disincentivize them to memorize in the future. And that's not something that I ever want to do. And my last, my last thought on this point is that if quiz masters are not confident in their knowledge of the rule book or the ruling that they have made, they can very easily become defensive when challenged. And this is just human nature. If there's something we don't understand, if there's something we don't feel confident in, any any um, talk to the contrary is going to cause us to go further in the opposite direction and kind of puff up our own confidence because we don't want to feel like we don't know something or we're not prepared. That makes That makes an individual feel weak, and often you will be very, very defensive. And that's why as a quiz master, 
I consider it very serious that I'm very prepared, that I reread the rule book, and that every time I make a ruling, I know what part of the rule book I am using to make this ruling because I need it to be consistent. And I need, like, the reason I need to be backed by this knowledge and this confidence and this consistency is there will be challenges and I will make mistakes, but I need to know when I'm challenged and when I'm making a ruling, maybe when I'm changing a ruling, that it's not um, knocking my my value as a quiz master down. It's just a mistake that was made or a different opinion that was had. And that allows me to both be consistent and let's say that there's a quizzer who challenges me super often and maybe not completely respectfully. It allows me to be confident in what I'm doing as a quiz master and to show grace and ensure that all quizzers have a really wonderful experience in quizzing. There are, you know, as a quiz master, you get all kinds of challenges. You get challenges that aren't based on the rule book. You get challenges that are worded, worded poorly. You get challenges by a team that's up 200 points in prelims and they're challenging a rookie's first question. You get all kinds of stuff. And I think it's so important for a quiz master to treat every single challenge as if it has the same amount of value as every other challenge and be respectful, provide really good information and come up with a consistent um, ruling that is well explained. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. My last thought here on this one before we move on, the thing that bothers me, uh, the thing that, 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 that I get down on myself on uh, the day after a quiz meet. So, you know, it, it's, uh, or it's, it's either, it's either on the drive home Saturday evening uh, from a quiz meet or it's Sunday afternoon when I'm reflecting on the quiz meet and I'm reflecting on what happened. The thing that, that bothers me are not the challenges that I receive. Uh, in fact, if anything, those are for me almost the highlight of, of quizzing. Uh, when, when I get challenged in my room and I'm able to engage in conversation in the official capacity of a quiz master, uh, with a conversation with the three captains and then adjudicate that, that challenge to me, that, that's, uh, that's one of the things I, I look forward to. I like that. What sticks in me and, and pains me is when I realize after a quiz is over or after a quiz meet is over and I'm remembering back on something on a, on a ruling or a question or something and I realize that I made a mistake and it didn't get challenged. And that, that bothers me because it's like, it's over. I can't go back and fix it. And, uh, that's where I, I, it is my responsibility to be as accurate and, and correct as I possibly can be, but I personally rely on challenges to increase my accuracy, to increase the quality of quiz mastery that happens in my room. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I don't see it as an attack at all, but quite the opposite. I see it as a helpful opportunity, uh, quizzers providing that helpful opportunity to the, the quiz master and other officials. So anyway, um, last question here. I think we might on... have to table this one, Griffin. I think we're going to end up going 20 minutes on this one question. Oh, really? Oh, I, oh, yeah. I was going to go, well, let's try it. Why not? All right. All right. <laughs> I, I don't have too much to add on this one, but maybe uh, maybe Scott has uh, has some more stories that he'd like to so, uh, talk about. So this is on protesting. Um, this is uh, the last questions here, and, and I'm going to sort of take the the – skip the middle part that uh, that Andrew wrote here and just kind of provide his first couple of questions and his last couple of questions about protesting. Have either of you been in protests? And of course, the answer is yes. I think both of us, right? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Uh, were there any memorable ones? Yes. 
or, or ones you wish you hadn't been in, yes, um, protesting seems to be shunned upon nowadays. That's true and unfortunate. Uh, what advice would you give to coaches on protesting when, how, why, and how often to protest? So, Scott, what are your thoughts? Hmm. Well, I've kind of come a long ways on protests. I think um, when I was a new coach, I, I, I viewed a protest as just another tool in a competition to um, come out ahead, and I still view it as such. And I think that it's the coach's responsibility to stand up for their quizzers if they think that a ruling has been made that's incorrect, to stand up for their quizzers, for the correct ruling. Um, if there's a case where a coach happens to know the material better than a quizzer, it's probably not a great idea to, um, not really in the spirit of quizzing, to protest based on a specific part, you know, some basis because of how well they know the material, but rather on an application of the rule book. Now, as it turns out, uh, the rule book's been changed, and so a coach is not allowed to protest um, unless there's first been a challenge, except for some fairly rare occurrences, like if a quiz didn't have the correct number of questions of a given type, or if the coach thought a light wasn't working, or something more general and not specific to a single ruling. But I still view protest as um, a valuable tool to ensure that the correct ruling is made. Now, Thinking of it purely from a competitive standpoint, I've found that protests really kill the mood of a quiz and the tone of a quiz, and it often ends up with all three teams involved quizzing quite poorly after a protest. And so because of that, I would be hesitant to protest unless I thought it was a very, very clear case. Um, but yeah, those are some of my first thoughts, Griffin. Yeah, and I completely agree. I, I see protesting as really just an extension of challenging and I am glad we have protesting as a tool in exactly for for exactly the same reasons that we have challenging as a tool. Uh, I see protesting as an opportunity to increase accountability and accuracy. Uh, it's rare. Uh, I've I, I I have let's see. It's been about two years since I've been back in quizzing now, and I haven't seen a single protest. Uh, in my entire career before my hiatus, which was, I don't know, well over a decade, I think it was like 15 years or something. I, for, I forget exactly how long, it, how long it was there. I think I was in involved and even heard of fewer than maybe five or six protests in, in that entire period of time. So it's, it's a very rare situation, but in most of the cases, I think it, the value of the protest comes down to exactly what Scott said. I think if there's a, if it's somewhat ambiguous, if it's a challenge, uh, that, that is, uh, you don't agree with, but it's a fairly ambiguous sort of situation, or if it's a fairly subjective, uh, ruling that, uh, that the challenge doesn't go the way that you want, I would probably as a coach avoid protesting at that point for exactly the reasons that, that Scott said. It, it kills the mood of the quiz. I don't really see that there's all that much value that comes from it. I also wouldn't even bother protesting if it was if I didn't think it was going to make a lot of difference uh, in in the in sort of the the outcome of a quiz. If I if I because really at the end of the day, if I'm protesting a ruling on one question, I'm protesting 20 points uh, or you know maybe a little bit more or less depending on the the, the scenario. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to make a ton of difference necessarily. Uh, so in that 
in that sense, I wouldn't necessarily stand up and, and, and engage in a protest as a coach. However, I will say that there was one particular time, uh, that, that comes into my memory quite often because I screwed up uh, as a coach. Uh, there was a, I was coaching at internationals. In fact, uh, Scott was on the team that I was coaching and he was the, you were the captain, right? I don't believe so, Griffin. I believe Jeremy and Michelle were our captains. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's right. Right. Okay. So you, but you were on the team and, uh, there was a, there was a challenge that took place and, uh, the captain of the team challenged, uh, she was right. And the other two captains, uh, of the other two teams actually in their rebuttals agreed with our captain and the quiz master overruled the challenge. And it was, it was one of those things where it was almost black and white letter rule book sort of, uh, situation where clearly, you know, even just reading the one sentence out of the rule book, it would have led to, uh, the acceptance of the challenge. It was at a, a very, very clear challenge, a very clear, uh, application of that one section of the, or one sentence, uh, of the rule book. And I decided not to protest because I didn't want to rock the boat and I felt a little bit awkward about it. It was my first time at internationals. Uh, and so I, I just kind of let it go. And it's always kind of stuck in me that it was, it, I, I did the wrong thing there, that it was my responsibility at that point to kind of stand up for what was right. And of course, whenever you're doing either a challenge or a protest, uh, it's an opportunity to demonstrate, uh, disagreement in, with gentleness and respect. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly important. When, when I was a quiz master, uh, back, I don't know, eight, eight, ten years ago or something like that, I encountered a protest from a coach that was not, uh, protesting with gentleness and respect. And that's hard. Uh, but I mean, you, you, you have to respond in the same way that you would from, uh, with a, if you're engaging in, or if you're getting challenged, uh, by a captain who is not challenging you with, uh, with gentleness and respect, you have to sort of engage in the same way as you would with a coach. Um, of course it's, it's a little bit harder because, you know, coaches have a little bit more, um, gravitas, I guess might be the word. Uh, but in the same way, it, uh, it, it was a little bit of a frustrating situation. And I thought that in that context, in that particular situation, it didn't provide a positive, uh, experience or a, a positive role model experience for quizzers who were in, in, involved in, in that quiz. So I would say as a captain, when you are challenging, think of, think of what you're doing partially in the context of being an example to your quizzers about what a good captain is going to be. And that includes challenging with gentleness and respect. And of course, as a coach, if you find yourself uh, thinking you might uh, protest, I would encourage you to go ahead and give it a try. But of course, do it with with gentleness and respect. Those are great thoughts, Griffin. I've, I've been involved in quite a number of protests. I think I've protested three times myself, all internationals, and I've had I've been protested at least three or four times as a quiz master myself, and since I'm the meet coordinator within our district, there's been a few others from different quiz rooms that I've uh, been a part of. But yeah, I think all, all three of, of mine at internationals um, involved different aspects of quiz mastering that I didn't quite agree with. I think there was a case of a quiz master not being confident in their abilities and being quite defensive at being protested and couldn't change their ruling because then they would be kind of admitting uh, incompetence in the ruling. Um, I've seen cases of a 
Quizmaster want to throw a question out instead of making the difficult decision on a ruling. Um, to me, that's also weak quiz mastering. You're supposed to be the leader, and if there is a correct ruling to make, you should be making it and not taking an easy way out. Um, I've seen another case where Quizmaster totally deferred um, handling the protest to the meet coordinator. You know, it was bizarre to me. I don't know why they would even do that. And then there was another. And then in a few of them, there was very strongly the sentiment of not wanting. Um, for a quizzer who had been called correct to have the ruling changed on them to incorrect. And that was like a very, very strong sentiment in uh, the proceedings of the protest, which was baffling to me. Like getting the correct ruling was not the foremost criteria and the foremost goal. And then another interesting, um, this is kind of an interesting ethical question to talk about, Griffin, but I could tell in one of the protests that two other coaches knew I was right. Um, they were very excellent quizzers in their own right. And I could tell they knew I was right and they did not say anything in the quiz and they just, you know, in the protest and they stayed very silent. And so like in a case like that, I'm super competitive, but I would sure hope that I would say, you know what? I think the ruling should be changed because the incorrect ruling was made. You know, I, I think at that point, it's much more important to reward the quizzer who actually got the question correct or to have the correct ruling happen than to fight for points for your own team in a dishonest way it was it was kind of bizarre to me and dishonest might be too strong of a word because um they were not the ones being protested you know it was up to the quiz master and the meat meat director to make the the, um the decision on the protest but it was an interesting interesting situation and actually uh it caused another team to get 20 points instead of our team getting a 10 point bonus question and we ended up missing um top nine by a point yeah. Well, any other protesting thoughts before we move on? Not really. I mean, I think just as with challenging, I think it's helpful to come back to what what is the outcome that I want and what are the goals that we have. Um, if our goals are enforcing the rule book um, as it's written for the because we believe that's to the best of the program, I think that's what you should do. I think if there are rules you don't really like, um, I would work to have them changed. Um, and I think the desire to have a quizzer counted correct more often than not or if a quizzer's been counted correct to not change it, I think those are really short-term emotional goals, and I think they're incorrect, and I think they're misguided. Yeah, and they also discourage people from memorizing, uh, it seems to me. I mean, not significantly. It may not you know, cause somebody to want to quit quizzing, although it might. It might even grow to be that big of a deal. But all these little tiny things add up, I think, over time, and we want to have things add up over time to a state of encouraging memorization rather than discouraging uh, memorization. So I think I think all of that uh, tends to apply and tends to go towards that bottom line. Well, in closing, uh, just a reminder to everybody that uh, for well, for the CMA uh, P and W folks, uh, we have our uh, quiz meet in Madras, uh, Oregon, in one week uh, from this Friday. So just a little bit less than. Uh, two weeks away. And of course, uh, reminder to everybody, if you are listening in and you want to give us any kind of feedback or questions or comments or concerns or any sort of things that you want to communicate with us, we very much would like to hear from you. Uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And please follow us on Twitter at Inside Quizzing. And I will close with our uh, a blessing from Second Corinthians uh, chapter 13. 
Uh, finally, uh, uh, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another, one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Uh, thanks, everybody. Thanks, Scott. See you later, Griffin. 